0: Today on the Christian Theology Podcast, we are discussing models of God. Specifically, we are discussing classical theism and theistic personalism. We're going to talk about what these things are and what they aren't, and why they're important for us as Christians today to understand. Now, when we talk about models of God, it's very easy, if you're familiar with this debate, you'll know this, to chase rabbits in every single thing you're talking about. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? We might talk about a particular model of God and somebody might say, what about this Bible passage? What about that Bible passage? Well, in due time, we will perhaps get into those issues in future podcasts. But for today, I would like this just to be a basic introduction into the classical theism versus theistic personalism debates that are taking place right now. We'll go over some history. Uh, Yes, I will lay my cards on the table. I am a classical theist, uh, but I'm not going to be super concerned with defending that idea here, though I will uh, periodically throughout this podcast. But basically what I want to do is just tell everybody what these things are and again, why they are important. So what is a model of God? Well, a model of God is essentially a way to explicate what you mean by God exists. So if we're all saying that God exists, then now we have to answer the question, what is that God like? What does he do? What does he not do? Does he, uh, what kind of nature does he have? What is his relationship to the world? And so models of God are just ways to explain what you mean by the word God and what you mean by how he is related to the world in which we live. So sometimes you might think of, say, like a pantheism. You may have heard of that. A pantheism is the idea that God is synonymous with the physical universe. The universe just is God. And so that would say, deny that there is a transcendent being that we call God that transcends time and space and matter and all of that, but rather that God is just the totality of the universe. The universe is like God's body of some sort. Uh, I don't know pantheism is is a, a bit weird to some people, but if you think like the movie Avatar, uh, that's the closest I can think of as far as a movie goes that would uh, tell you like what pantheism might look like as well. Uh, You have things like panentheism, where the world, the universe, is a part of God in a sense, but it's also not God. God transcends the universe. Uh, That term gets a little iffy, honestly. But the models that we're talking about today have to do with classical theism and theistic personalism. These are the two models that seem to be competing in modern Christian thought today. And so we'll start with some definitions and then get into a little bit of the history. What is classical theism? Well, classical theism is the belief that God is divinely timeless, immutable, impassable, and simple. And so what do we mean by those terms? Well, God is timeless in the sense of he does not exist in the present only. But that he exists in the past, in the present, and in the future. That God transcends time. God does not experience sequence because everything exists eternally to himself. So that's what we would mean by timelessness. Sometimes you might hear this popularly said that um, God is outside of time. But that's not quite precisely accurate. Uh, We would say that God is both in time and out of time. He transcends time. Uh, God also is immutable, immutable in the sense of he does not change. Now, for the classical theist, though some have tried to uh, redefine this term in, in recent times, and we'll talk about a little bit of that later, but for the classical theist, immutability means that God does not change intrinsically in himself and also he does not change extrinsically meaning that he does not even change in relationship to someone he doesn't change in who he is he's he's good he's powerful he's just he's all of that but also he does not change in relationship to creation that's directly related to timelessness, because if he exists in the past and in the present and in the future, then there's nothing that is happening that is going to change his experience of um, his own existence. So he does not change in relationship to creation. Creation does not act on God. It does not affect God in the sense of making him undergo any kind of change, whether that be relationally or intrinsic to himself as well. We believe that God is impassable. Impassable meaning that he does not undergo a series of emotional changes. Uh, It's not to say that God does not have any emotion whatsoever. That is sort of a a misnomer by by some people today. But we mean that God exists in an eternal state of bliss. This is what it would mean that God is impassable. Nothing can change this reality, that he exists in this eternal state of bliss and nothing, again, nothing is going to to change that. He doesn't undergo emotion. He's not a psychological subjectivity where one minute, you know, he's happy and one minute he's sad, one minute he's mad, one minute he's uh, not. So that's what impassibility means. And then lastly, we believe that God is divinely simple, meaning that God is not made up of physical parts. Obviously, he doesn't have a body, he's not made up of arms and legs, but also the more... Um, The more controversial, I guess you could say, notion is that God is not made up of metaphysical parts. Metaphysical parts, meaning like goodness, righteousness, justice, those things that we partake in, they are called universals in philosophy oftentimes. And uh, what exactly that means can differ from person to person, like Plato and Aristotle would have meant different things by them, but they would have both agreed, essentially, that they exist independent of our thought. And so, something like goodness or justice, those things exist objectively in the abstract realm, at least. And what the classical theist will say about God is that he is not made up of those properties. He's not dependent upon those properties to be who he is, but that God just is goodness. He just is justice. Uh, The most precise way I think to say it is that God just is being, he's beyond being, he just is existence. And so his essence, what he is, and his existence, that he is, are merged together, I suppose you could say. There is no distinction between his essence and his existence. He just, again, is divinely simple, not made up of parts. That can seem a little counterintuitive if you're not familiar with that, but I assure you this is a, an historic doctrine that Christians have held to for a very long time until recently now theistic personalism comes in many forms and some people do not like the term theistic personalist because there are a lot of different kinds of theistic personalists like there's neoclassical theists there's open theists there's process theists and even even then among those theists there are differences among them so some people don't like theistic personalism they say it's not great scholarship because it just includes a large swath of differences of opinion that are too different to be included, perhaps, in the same group. That's some people's opinion, anyway. As well, theistic personalism has often been used as a pejorative, and so people don't like it because they think it's more of an attack on them as opposed to just being a legitimate description of what they believe. Nonetheless, a theistic personalist is someone who would believe Or Well, they may believe in some of those things that classical theists believe in, but they would deny at least one of those four um, attributes of God, as we might say, or one of those four ways of thinking about God, that he is timeless, that he is simple, that he is impassable, and that he is immutable. Uh, These theistic personalists of various, various stripes will deny that at least one of those things are true. So, for example, a neoclassical theist is usually someone now, the way that that term is used in the contemporary literature anyway, now usually a neoclassical theist would be someone who believes that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of the future, uh, perhaps even that God is outside of time, though sometimes they don't, but they would then deny something else about classical theism. Oftentimes they would deny a good bit of, Of those other things that God is impassable or immutable Uh, they would maybe critique or redefine timelessness Um, they would not believe in divine simplicity you can think of somebody like a William Lane Craig William Lane Craig would be firmly considered a neoclassical theist as he does not believe in divine simplicity and has sort of redefined um, timelessness and so, anyway, he would be an example of a neoclassical theist. You've got open theists like John Sanders, William Hasker, Clark Pinnock, uh, people like this. Open theists would believe that God does not know the future exhaustively because the future is not possible to be known, at least not in how it actually is going to be. The future can be known how it is, which is as possibilities. This is how most of the Open theists that I've ever read will frame it, is that God knows the future as it is, which is possibilities. The future is not an ontological reality because open theists are presentists, meaning that they believe God exists in time and that time has a prioritized present moment and that everything in the universe and, and in existence, including God, is experiencing sequence. Uh, in the present, going from here to there. And the only thing that ontologically exists would be the present moment. So an open theist would would say that God does not know the future. And obviously, as far as how that relates to classical theism, that means they're going to deny um, divine timelessness. And most open theists, I know, will then deny these other traits as well, that God is immutable or that he's impassable or that he is simple. Process theists, not as popular. That's more of an academic thing. It's not really made its way into what I would call mainstream Christianity That yet. Though uh, Tom Ord, Dr. Tom Ord, is trying his best. Uh, seems like a good guy, but certainly has, has written on more of a popular level from seemingly a processed perspective. And process theists, just long story short, they do not like Arist- Aristotelian. Substance-based metaphysics, they prefer to say that process is what is foundational to reality. Uh, This is for many reasons, uh, both scientific and and logical, but they would basically deny that that substance is at the core of reality, but something like quantum phenomena, which, which is process, essentially, that's what's at the core of reality, and so... Process is what is most fundamental, not substance, and so that goes for God as well. God is constantly in process, and so process theists would emphasize to a much greater extent the immutability of God and the impassibility of God Um, as a consequence of their system. They would usually deny uh, typical notions of omnipotence because God cannot just act unilaterally He uh, he has to act upon something and with something. Uh, They don't believe in creation out of nothing. Rather, they believe uh, that that matter is coexistent. There's a co-eternal matter with God. So anyway, that's an oversimplification, but that's process theism. It's more of an academic thing. Most of the people who are attacking classical theism and more of the mainstream are neoclassical theists and open theists, which can broadly be considered theistic personalists. Now, I know that was a lot, and maybe that's new to some people, but that is about as simple as you can get of an explanation of some of these issues. Now, before we get into the modern debate surrounding these things, I want to talk a little bit about the history, because I think the history is important. So, what was God? What were the gods before Greek philosophy? Well... They were largely anthropomorphic deities, meaning that they were very human-like entities that had a superhuman strength or power. Um, But what's important for our discussion here is that there was no real metaphysics in the ancient, ancient world, I guess you could say. Aristotle is actually the first person to write something that was entitled metaphysics. Metaphysics... Is just the branch of philosophy that deals with the principle of first things and so Aristotle really deals with that um, in in a in a more comprehensive manner than anybody had before Plato you could argue you know alludes to that Plato is usually associated with classical theism but he's not uh, really the classical theist that somebody like Aristotle is anyway we'll get to Aristotle in just a second the gods before Aristotle and, and yes even after somewhat were anthropomorphic and what happens in the ancient mythology of the of the ancient world is that chaos is really what is considered to be fundamental to the universe. So in all of these various mythologies you may have a god or a goddess who defeats another god or a goddess and out of their carcass they create uh, the world as we know it. Um, so this was and and again that's an oversimplification but basically that is pretty much true of a lot of the mythologies in the ancient world is that chaos is what is fundamental there was no attempt to explain you know maybe where the first principle of existence comes from why it's there there wasn't um, the to my knowledge anyway the the comprehensive effort to explain why anything at all exists, which is what metaphysics does in part, is to get to that first principle of existence and say, this is what is foundational to the rest of existence. So before Greek philosophy, there wasn't a whole lot of that. The world emerges from chaos. Uh, Really, you can, and this is somewhat controversial, but not really in Hebrew scholarship, you can somewhat see this in like the first chapter of Genesis where it says in the beginning, uh, God began to create as, as some as, uh, as I would say, a majority of Hebrew scholars are now saying the, the Hebrew means there, that God began to create, and then when He began to create, or just in your English translation may say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But notice what's just after that, you have the earth was um, void and without form, and there was just the, the waters that were, were chaotic. Um, it's chaos. You, you can somewhat see that even in, in Genesis is that God is creating by a molding chaos, by bringing order out of chaos. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that that's how Christians should interpret Genesis because we don't read the Old Testament on its own. We read it in light of Christian theology and in light of Jesus. Um, so those are, those are more complicated debates surrounding Genesis. I'm just saying that's an example of uh even in the old testament somewhat you have god bringing order from chaos and that's how creation is thought of Um, but when you get to plato and aristotle you will see more especially in aristotle like i said a an effort to explain why anything at all exists not to start with with chaos or something like that but just to explain why is there anything at all? And Aristotle famously concludes with the unmoved mover. That was his idea of what we call God, is that God is this first metaphysical principle and because everything else is set in motion. and Anytime something is set in motion, it has to have something else set in motion. And so unless you want an infinite metaphysical regress, you have to have this ultimate metaphysical principle that is unmoved by anything else. Because if he was moved, then something would have to move him, and then he would require further explanation. You can see how that goes. So for Aristotle, God was the unmoved mover. This is rather famous, even in Christian circles, because Clark Pinnock, one of the most famous open theists, wrote uh, the most moved mover in a response, and I'll have a little bit from that in just a minute. Though there are differences to what, say, Aristotle would believe in what someone like, say, Irenaeus would have believed, um, they both shared this same logical framework, what we call classical theism. And they shared it, Christians and non-Christians alike in the ancient world, because it was logically compelling for reasons that we'll get into just a little bit in a minute. But all Christians basically uh, assumed this, at least what we might call the Proto-Orthodox, but even some of the um, heretics were assuming classical theism as well. So like the Nestorians, for example, they thought that Christ had to be made up of two persons because the divine person of the Logos, uh, he would not have been able to be incarnate. He would not have been able to be exposed to the... um, the, the changing nature of the universe. He wouldn't have been able to be exposed to um, suffering and pain and, and even, just things like that. Emotional change, change relationally. And so the Nestorians would say that he had to be two persons because only the human person of Christ could experience that. The divine person could not. Of course, Chalcedon ended up saying that Christ was not made up of two persons, but of two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature, and the human nature is what was exposed to all of the suffering and whatnot, whereas the divine nature, of course, remained remained unchanged. The Arians and the Eunomians, Eunomians being extreme Arians, they were the same way. They said that if there was real generation in God, meaning that the Son is begotten from the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, the, the the classical doctrine of divine processions that we'll actually talk about a little bit next week. They said, if that is true, then that entails a real change in God. And some people in our, in our modern times, somebody like uh, Ryan Mullins, who is a, I guess he's still kind of young, up-and-comer, a philosophical theologian, very smart guy, he has argued that... Uh, the Unomian premise was actually correct, that any generation in God would entail change in God in some way. So the the heretics even presupposed classical theism. But what's interesting is that the proto-Orthodox, what we now consider the, the church fathers, they did not abandon classical theism because of some of these charges. They dealt with the issues certainly they didn't believe in nestorianism or arianism but they also maintained classical theism so classical theism was not just something that you know could have been thrown away if it ever faced a difference but rather for the church fathers they maintained it even in the face of some of these very difficult um, theological conversations that they were having um, i have here that also you know jews like philo even were classical theists. So it wasn't just pagans, it was Jews, it was Christians. Uh, The ancient world, they were classical theists for, again, a lot of logically compelling reasons. Now, the medieval scholastics like Anselm and Aquinas and Peter Abelard, they develop classical theism even further. Um, They, I guess a, a good way to put it without getting into it is that They more focus on the doctrine of divine simplicity, and they articulate a a stronger version of the doctrine of divine simplicity in some people's minds than that was uh, uh, posited by the church fathers. So that's one way that people describe this, but the medieval scholastics, uh, mainly Aquinas, of course, being the most influential, they believe in classical theism. And if you talk to a Catholic today, at least a Catholic that knows their stuff, uh, they're certainly also going to say that um, divine simplicity is a a massive part of their faith, a massive part of their understanding of who God is. The Reformers, they also hold to it. This is a little more controversial um, for things that we'll get into in just a second, but I actually have it here. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, Section 1. If you're watching the video version, you'll be able to see this on the screen. It says, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. And you know goes into the rest, but that's an important point because notice the, the line without parts or passions, immutable, eternal. Using eternal there in the in the sense of, of timeless. Obviously, uh, God has to be timeless if he is to be immutable, because if you experience time, then that is experiencing sequence. And therefore, you are experiencing change. And so a massive part of classical theism has always been divine timelessness. Of course, there are many people, even those who don't hold to classical theism today, that are influenced by that thinking because there's a lot of people who may not agree with things like immutability or impassibility or divine simplicity, but they do want to say that God is outside of time and certainly that God has an exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. Well, how does God have that exhaustive foreknowledge of the future? To the classical theist, it is because he um, exists ontologically in the future as well as the past and the present. So that's how he has that knowledge because everything uh, exists to him all at once. And so that's how God has divine foreknowledge. Of course, a, a Calvinist may say something a little differently. They may say he has that divine foreknowledge because he has exhaustively determined what is going to happen in the future, of course, Um, I don't think that at all. I think that God has foreknowledge because he exists in the future as well as the past and the present. So the reformers held to classical theism. But now when you get to modern times, and this isn't comprehensive. I know people like Greg Boyd have pointed out those who maybe believed in open theism. And I think he's gone all the way back to the 4th century. He found a guy, I believe, in the Celsius or something like that. I'd have to read his article again. But uh, there have been people like Greg Boyd who have tried to say that there were people who believe in something like open theism um, through Christian history, though they were in a vast minority. Don't know a whole lot about that. I'm not super interested in that debate, honestly. But um, there are those who have said that, so I must clarify these comments with that. But basically, when you get to modern times, you have what's called process theism, what we mentioned earlier, that comes that comes to fruition in some of academia uh, in, in kind of the liberal Christian, quote unquote, circles within academia. You have Alfred Whitehead, who produces uh, process and reality in 1929. That's when that's published. Um, basically, that was a comprehensive metaphysical system that dealt with process metaphysics it was based in what we now call process metaphysics as opposed to uh, substance-based metaphysics and that was then the catalyst for a lot of his successors like a charles hartshorn or david ray griffin to take what he had written in process and reality and to create a kind of process theology but basically what process theists said was that classical theism um, makes God out to be too impersonal you remember we have two world wars in the 20th century Um, John Feinberg in his book um, No One Like Him great resource for the doctrine of God you should definitely get it if you're interested in this though he is himself more of a neoclassical theist he does do a great job of documenting some of this stuff and he says that you know especially after the, the world wars and something like the holocaust and you know communism killing 100 million people or Whatever it was, people were looking for a different kind of God, a God who could perhaps suffer with them. And so process theism came to fruition. But it wasn't just process theism then because also you have open theism starting there, though not officially, officially like we're going to see in a minute. Uh, But even like neoclassical theists, what we would call them now, they begin to deny some of these aspects of classical theism in large part in the 20th century due to some of those concerns with the world wars and all of the destruction that they had seen. Uh, There's also the rise of critical biblical studies where basically you have the Bible being uh, read and studied as an historical document in and of itself, not being studied as Christian scripture. So what modern scholars were concerned with was what does the Bible historically mean? Is it historically accurate? Is it not historically accurate? What did the author originally intend to convey to the original audience? That's what critical biblical studies was really all about in addition to things like redaction criticism and form criticism and some of the other things that came along with it. Uh, Looking at some of the sources behind the text that we have now, but for our purposes today, it was important because people start viewing the Bible and studying it as though it is like any other piece of historical literature. And so they're applying critical methods to it. And because of some of that, you have the rise of modern biblical studies where a grammatical historical exegesis of the Old Testament is going to be thrust to the forefront of Christian epistemology, and that's just another way of saying that how people were going to determine what was true about God was that they were going to read the Bible, and they were going to read it literally, and they were not going to read it in light of tradition or creeds or Christian philosophy or anything like that. All that was going to be done away with. They were going to do away with those presuppositions, supposedly, and they're going to read the Bible most literally, and that is going to determine then what is true about God. And when that happens, classical theism is, is done away with really in a lot of scholarship because now this literal reading of the Bible is what's most important to a lot of the scholars. Uh, again, I'm not really commenting on if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I obviously don't think it's a great thing because I'm a classical theist myself, but I will say it is understandable. Um, you can see why it happens. There's, there's a good explanation for it. And today, many people do value a very literalistic reading of the Bible. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Also, you had some in those modern times, uh, new scientific advancements, which that was really more to do with process theism. So they would see something like quantum mechanics and they would think, okay, what's most fundamental to our reality is process. And because of a lot of scientific reasons that are probably above my head, uh, a lot of the process theists said that, that new science, quantum mechanics, uh, that kind of thing, relativity, those were going to give more credence to process metaphysics than to uh, substance-based metaphysics. And so modern scientific advancements also contributed to some of this as well. Now, even among the more mainstream theologians, uh, so people who weren't necessarily process theists, attacks on classical theism became the norm. So Evan Pollard in 1955, for example, he writes, and this is a common attack, it becomes a very common place to say that classical theism is the result of Greek philosophy, which it somewhat is, but basically Greek philosophy and the Bible, essentially, were placed against one another to where you you either believed in Greek philosophy or you believed in the Bible. That's that's what you you have in the 20th century, really, in a lot of scholarship. And so Evan Pollard, for example, in 1955, he writes, Among the many Greek philosophical ideas imported into Christian theology and into Alexandrine Jewish theology before it is the idea of the impassable God, and this idea furnishes us with a particularly striking illustration of the damage done by the assumption of alien philosophical presuppositions when they are applied to Christian theology. And that was uh, a journal, a journal, uh, an article. Excuse me, titled "The Impassibility of God," written in the Scottish Journal of Theology, again in 1955. You get to 1986, and Ronald Goetz was uh, acknowledging that there was a growing number of theologians who adv- advocated for and advanced an idea of divine passibility, or an idea that God did undergo emotional change. And he announced it as what is now famously deemed the rise of a new orthodoxy notice he says a new orthodoxy because the old orthodoxy was classical theism, as everyone has recognized. Um, But this idea that God is passable, that he is mutable, that he is affected by creation, uh, that is a new orthodoxy. And it's given rise because of a lot of this other stuff that we've already said, new scientific advancements that some interpret as being against some of the old theology. Uh, You have the rise of the critical biblical studies And then, of course, the tragedies of the 20th century. All of this contributes to a a desire to see a different view of God be advanced in the Christian world and in the larger religious world. So this all culminates because, see, so far this has been somewhat in academia, though I would say that regular people are probably affected by it at this point, too. But what really gets to the the regular, the average person, the person sitting in the pew, more than any of these other movements with process theism or whatnot, is the publication of The Openness of God, A Biblical Challenge to the Traditional Understanding of God, which was published in 1994 by Clark Pinnock, Richard Rice, John Sanders, William Haskins, and David Basinger. Basinger. Basinger, probably. I'm more unfamiliar with Clark Pinnock, Richard Rice, John Sanders, and William Hasker. They all write this, the openness of God, a biblical challenge to the traditional understanding of God, and this is the catalyst. This is the launching pad for open theism now being launched into mainstream Christianity where now it's not just something that's happening in academic journals and whatnot. This is something that people in churches are beginning to talk about. It's something that mainstream evangelicals, are having to talk about Roger Olson, he actually described it this way. He said that open theism and the controversy surrounding it was the most dismaying and disillusioning thing I have experienced in my 50 some years of being an evangelical. So so I think it's funny actually, because open theism, you know, it still sometimes gets a, a bad rap. So you'll have people who will say that Open theism is heresy, but open theism is just the natural conclusion. I guess you could say that process theism is really the natural conclusion, but I think it's fair to say that open theism is a natural conclusion of the departure from classical theism. I mean, some people don't think that that's fair, but I think that there's no really way to get around that. If you're going to say that God changes and that God undergoes emotional change, and that God can be affected by creation. I don't know how you can say that he is timeless. That wouldn't make really that much sense at all, honestly, to me. And so if you're not going to say he's timeless, then, well, you're going to be an open theist. And open theists are are pushing this point against some of the neoclassical theists now who still want to deny open theism. But nonetheless, I find it funny when somebody like a Roger Olson may say this is dismaying and disillusioning. Yes, but it had been a long time coming. This was brewing. When people start saying that something like divine simplicity that had been affirmed by all Christians throughout all times, basically, or a vast majority, is simply the result of Greek philosophical interference in Christian theology, And of course you're going to then go on to all kinds of stuff that doesn't really resemble early Christian ideas about God. That's 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 what's gonna happen. So now we get to then where we are, where even someone, piggybacking on that point I just made, like a D.A. Carson, who's a Calvinist obviously, and would certainly consider himself to be Orthodox when it comes to Christianity. Um, people in D.A. Carson's ilk will oftentimes like to be gatekeepers, perhaps, of what is orthodoxy and what is not. Um, but what's ironic is that D.A. Carson himself, and many like him, like a Bruce Ware, they have themselves depart, departed from what is true orthodoxy, which is classical theism. I mean, if, if by orthodoxy you're going to mean it's in the creeds and it's what Christians have believed for a vast majority of Christianity's history, then... That's classical theism. D.A. Carson says, for example, in his book, um, oh, I forget exactly what that book was called. I should have had it down in my notes here, but it was like the, the difficult doctrine of the love of God, I believe, or something like that. He says that even a cursory reading of Scripture will tell you that God can be affected by creation. So even a cursory reading of Scripture will tell you that God can be affected by creation. Now, to be fair, a lot of people agree with him. A lot of people agree that this is obviously what the Bible teaches, and so this isn't really a, a controversial statement. And I'm not, like, mad that he believes that or something. I'm just, I, I find it, again, ironic that we can just casually say that God can be affected by creation. And that is not, again, that's not the, the belief of, of the orthodox, quote-unquote, Christians. Um, Bruce Ware has done the same thing where he will like redefine immutability to say God does not change in his essence, but he can change in relation to creatures. So they're both uh, along with others, others doing the same thing. But I I do find this ironic. And the question of orthodoxy is one that I, I can hardly stand in our modern day because it completely misses that classical theism is the orthodoxy. And if you go away from one of those four aspects of classical theism, then you've gone away from orthodoxy. Now, does that mean you're not a Christian? No, I don't think so. I think you can be a Christian and be an open theist or a neoclassical theist or whatever. I'm just saying we probably need to cool it with all of the orthodoxy talk if we're not going to hold to orthodox doctrines of God. (laughs) Uh, That's my opinion anyway. Even though, moving on now past the the DA Carson, classical theists have said that in contrast to something like what D.A. Carson or Bruce Ware had said, they say that classical theism entails that God is pure actuality, that God is pure act, that He that He has no potential. He can't go from one state to another. He can't go from being in one relationship to another because he is just pure act. Again, he's timeless. He exists in the past and the the present and the future. So he does not undergo these kinds of changes that some people have alleged. He's pure actuality. So what are some key differences to begin to wrap this up and talk about just a little bit of the differences between the modern classical theist and the modern theistic personalists? Well, again, the four aspects classical theists would would agree with, divine immutability, timelessness, impassibility, and simplicity. Theistic personalists are going to deny one of those. And really, when you get to the Bible, especially, but even not just the Bible, but a lot of uh, analytic philosophers will deny classical theism. Analytic philosophy It just means true by definition of the words that you're using. So if something is analytic, it is true by by virtue of the definition of the words in the sentence. Um, If something is, you know, just analogous or metaphorical, it could be true but not in an analytic sense. So the analytic philosophy that arose in the 20th century, because of some of all of this other stuff that we've been talking about, it basically tries to formulate sentences and paragraphs and entire works that will make something true by definition of the words that they use. And so a lot of times the analytic philosophers and people who are reading the Bible, uh, they'll read it in a more analytic way. They think that you need to use univocal language. So they'll tend toward univocal language when it comes to studying the Bible. Um, especially this, I mean, in the Christian context, getting away from some of the academic, you know, analytic philosophers and everything. In a Christian context, this means reading the Bible in a more literal way. What is what is conveyed by the literal meaning of the words on the page is is often what is true. Now, this is not uh, this group of people who tend toward uh, univocal language. This is not a monolithic group. Obviously, it's on a a spectrum. Um, what is what, what can be metaphorical and still is true, and then what needs to be read literally and what needs to be read figuratively. There's people who will disagree on those things, but they do tend toward univocal language. And so to give one more example of univocal language before we get into uh, some of these things that theistic personalists have said, univocal language, again, it, it does away with ambiguity in the words. So, for example, if I say that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, that is not a univocal statement. That is not a univocal statement because it's not literally true. It's not analytically true. Uh, it's metaphorically true. We know what I'm trying to convey but by that idea, meaning if I look toward the east uh, in, the, in the morning, I will see the sun. And if I look toward the west, I will see the sun going down, quote unquote. But it's not literally true because... The sun's not moving. It's the earth that is spinning, that is, and rotating around the sun. That's what's causing um, this change in where the sun is from day to day. So it's not univocally true that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It's true when you take into account what I'm trying to convey, but it's not analytically true. So that's that's a good example I I think I found of what univocal language is and is not. Whereas if you say the sky is blue, and assuming that the, you know it's a clear sky and everything, uh, then that would be a univocal statement because that is literally true by definition of the words that are used. So now you go to the Bible and you apply this tendency toward univocal language and you get theistic personalism, uh, especially in the case of open theism, but not just in the case of open theism. So when the Bible will say something like, God repented that he had made man, the theistic personalists, though maybe not all of them, again, it's not a monolithic group, but a lot of them will say, okay, that means that God actually did regret that he made man, like I would regret getting a a B on a test or something. Uh, It's the same kind of regret. Uh, Maybe it's had on a different scale because God is much different than us, but it's still the same kind of thing. Whereas the classical theist would have traditionally read that as um, people went against God's created order. They went against God's intention for creation. And so that's what is trying to be conveyed when it says that God repented that he had made man. Uh, The classical theist would not read that. Again, if we're reading it as Christian scripture, not just as a historical text, we would not read that as saying that God literally is sorry that like he didn't know what was going to happen, and then it did happen, and so now he regrets that it happened, and he wishes humans never existed. That's not how classical theists would certainly interpret the text. We would just say, again, humans did something that was contrary to God's created order, contrary to God's uh, will for their lives. This can be taken so far, this univocal language, that somebody like Clark Pinnock, who wrote The Most move Mover, this comes from this book, he said, In tradition, God is thought to function primarily as a disembodied spirit, but this is scarcely an idea. Pinnock would then go on to cite various Old Testament texts, including Exodus 24, 10-11, and thirty-three eleven, to demonstrate that the biblical authors viewed God as eating and drinking physically with the elders of Israel, in addition to talking to Moses face-to-face. And so, When you think of God, he even says, traditionally God has been thought of as a disembodied spirit. When you think of God, we often think of him in those terms, as a disembodied spirit, a mental substance, I believe, as uh, Richard Swinburne says it, he's an open theist himself. Uh, That's usually how we think of God, but Clark Pinnock is saying that really, when you read the language of the Old Testament, God's got arms, God's got legs, he's walking through the Garden of Eden. He's eating and drinking with the elders of Israel. He's looking at Moses face to face. Are we really sure that God is a disembodied spirit? Are we we positive that God is not like a corporeal being with a body sitting on a literal throne? And yes, not all open theists think this way. And Clark Pinnock goes, he stops just short of actually affirming that. He just is questioning the idea in this book, anyway. But when you look at like popular open theists, I've seen in some uh, different theological discussion groups on like Reddit and Facebook and these different places that there are popular level open theists who believe that God has a literal body, that God has a physical body, that he sits on a physical throne. Why does this happen? Again, univocal understanding of language, tending, trending toward univocal language. It's not every open theist. It's not every theistic personalist. Uh, like I said, Richard Swinburne is an open theist. He doesn't think that way about God. He, he explicitly makes the case in his um, his book, The Case for Theism. or the, No, The Rationality of Theism. Some, something like that. The Rationality of Theism. Now I'm going to have to look that up real quick. Swinburne Rationality of Theism. The Coherence of Theism. That's what it was. So in The Coherence of Theism, uh, Swinburne makes that case, that God is a disembodied spirit, he's a person, uh, and he's a mental substance as it were. And So not all open theists or theistic personalists think this way, but when you start trending toward the idea of univocal language, it's very easy to come to these conclusions that God has a body and that God sits on a literal throne and that God literally repents and that God literally is surprised by something that happens, if this this is your understanding of the Bible, then these are things that will come to mind. So, historically, a literal or a univocal reading of the Bible was not at the forefront of a Christian's epistemology. Um, And what I mean by that is Christians, they engaged in philosophy, They they engaged in logic, and they did not read, especially the Old Testament, literally. And then in everything that they read in the Old Testament, then say, "Well, this is what's true about God." That's not how they handled the Old Testament. That's not how they handled their epistemology, how they knew what they knew. Um, they they engaged, like I said, in logic, in philosophy, in metaphysics, in theology. They looked at the person of Jesus and said, okay, what is Jesus like? If we see anything in the Old Testament that is contrary to what Jesus is like, then we have to interpret those Old Testament passages allegorically or spiritually to align with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. This is how the early Christians thought about this. This is, this is the classical Christian understanding of Scripture. It is not the modern understanding of Scripture, and some listening to this may not like those things that I just said, but this, this is the historical fact. This is how Christians handled uh, Scripture. It was Gregory of Nyssa who went so far as to say that you know you should not be surprised if God did not literally kill the firstborn during the exodus because he says that sometimes we have to go toward the spiritual reading of a text as opposed to the literal one, if the literal rendering of a text is to give harm. I'm not commenting right now on on if that's good or bad. I'm just simply saying this is the classical Christian understanding of the Bible. So this, even though the Bible is often used to go against classical theism, um, the way that you read the Bible for a classical theist is the way that Christians read the Bible in the early church. So let's move on past that because we're about out of time here. The last set of differences is that the theistic personalist believes that God cannot be divinely simple. So divine simplicity, I'm actually going to have an exclusive podcast for our financial supporters um, just on divine simplicity and the importance of it uh, later this month. But for now, just to give a short version. There are those, um, I think Ryan Mullins has done one of the best jobs of challenging divine simplicity in his work. So I'm not saying that these objections to divine simplicity are not valid or that they are elementary or something. Um, I'm just saying that despite the weightiness of such objections, Christians have still wanted to maintain divine simplicity in their thinking. But nonetheless, somebody like a Ryan Mullins would say that uh, divine simplicity, that God is not made up of parts, remember not physical parts and not metaphysical parts, he would say that that leads to modal collapse. And what modal collapse is, modal logic is just dealing with the logic behind necessity and possibility. That's essentially what modal logic is. And so if God experiences modal collapse, then what he's trying to say is that if, if God is divinely simple, if he's not made up of parts, if he's pure existence, if he's he's pure actuality, if he has no potential, then that leads to a modal collapse in the sense of God is now not free to do what he does. And then to a lesser extent, though I think Mullins would would maybe say this as well, that it leads to modal collapse for um, the universe. And I know that like Timothy O'Connor would say something like this as well. Like Timothy O'Connor In his book, The Theism and Ultimate Explanation, The Necessary Shape of Contingency, he said that where Aquinas and the other medieval scholastics went wrong was that they didn't leave any room for contingency in the universe. So because of the doctrine of divine simplicity and there's no potential, there's no potential for anything. Everything just has to necessarily exist. And so that's what Mullins is saying here is that God is not free to create or not to create. If he is divinely simple and also, you know, by extension, then we can't be free. Uh, The universe cannot be truly contingent because everything is completely necessary. Somebody like a David Bentley Hart, who is to my, for my money, the best scholar alive. He has responded to such claims and has said basically that God does not derive his freedom from an arbitrary choice of options. So he doesn't derive his freedom from deliberating between an arbitrary choice of options. Rather, God is free because God acts in perfect accordance with his nature, which is perfect rationality and perfect intelligence. And so something that is free, especially when it comes to God, is not free just because it has the power of contra-choice. That may be a part of freedom, especially for us as humans. But when it comes to God, God is free, and a truly free act for anyone is done in the sense of it is done according to perfect rationality, and it is not influenced by external factors. And so one easy way to see this is that, you know, you would not hold someone who is mentally challenged accountable for an action that they do because they are not doing that action completely in freedom. They may, they may carry out an action or somebody like a child, they may they may carry out an action, and they may be the ones, their their consciousness, they may be deliberating between the action and then choosing an action or another action, but that doesn't make them necessarily perfectly free because they are not perfectly rational. They are not acting in accordance to rationality and in accordance to their nature. And so for a human, our nature is to Uh, Worship God. That's what we were created for. Was to worship God. That's what the Garden of Eden is all about. That's what creation is like, apart from sin and corruption. That's our natural state is to be with God. And so, for a human to act in perfect rationality and freedom would be to uh, follow Jesus. Would be to conform our lives to the to the will of God. Um, But somebody who is a child or is mentally challenged, they're not free perfectly because they don't fully grasp what it is that they are doing. So then when you talk about God and his freedom, he acts according to his nature and according to perfect rationality. And so in doing so, he is inevitably going to create. But he doesn't derive his freedom, again, from deliberating between other possibilities. He derives his freedom from the fact that he creates without compulsion from external factors. And he creates in accordance with his perfect nature and rationality. That's what makes God free. Further, in the experience of God, David Bentley Hart says that creation out of nothing does not need to be thought of in mechanically deterministic terms. It can be thought of as God timelessly donating his being, past, present, and future, to truly contingent secondary causes. Meaning that God can create out of nothing and be perfectly responsible for existence as such without being perfectly responsible for what it is a moral agent will choose to do in this situation or in that situation or without being responsible for what people may do in terms of evil or whatever it is. So I do think there are, following David Bentley Hart, and he would say following people like Maximus the Confessor, uh, there are good responses to the charge of something like modal collapse. Um, But nonetheless... Uh, we'll leave it there. That's the that's the theistic personalist um, ideas that it leads to modal collapse. God can't be free if he's divinely simple because he's pure actuality, he's pure existence. Uh, he can't but do anything that he does because he, he has no potential. Um, but the response is that he acts according to perfect rationality and to his nature, and he is not compelled by external forces to do what he does. And he can create perfectly free and contingent secondary causes. Um, this this is logically possible Uh, Creation from nothing is not a kind of causation that we know anything about, uh, as David Bentley Hart would point out. So it's perfectly reasonable to, to think that God could do something like this. So, in conclusion, there you have it. You have theistic personalism. God is affected by the world. God can undergo change. God undergoes emotional change. God perhaps even experiences the sequence of time. And then you have classical theism where God is timeless, immutable, impassable, and divinely simple. Oh, one more thing I should say about divine simplicity because you know somebody may ask, well what's the importance of divine simplicity? Why do we have to hold to it? Well, divine simplicity is what makes God. It's what it's what causes God. It's what allows us to explain that God exists. All say in and of himself. It's what allows us to explain that God is the ultimate metaphysical principle that is responsible for existence as such. So why is there anything at all? It's because God exists. Everything you see in existence is made up of parts. Uh, The camera that we're using, this microphone, this computer, us as people, you can break it down or us down into smaller parts, whether they're physical parts for us or uh, metaphysical parts. So let's say somebody is good and wise and just. Well, goodness and wisdom and justice are what most Christians would believe are uh, universals. They, They are universals. They exist independent of our thinking. Like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, they exist objectively. And so we are good or we are wise or we are just if we partake in those universals that exist. That's what makes us good or wise or just. And so we are dependent upon those parts to be who we are. I mean, I think anybody would say that if somebody could not be good and they were a good person, then they're not who they were. So we are dependent upon metaphysical parts even to be who we are. So if God was made up of such really distinct properties, then he would be dependent upon those properties to be who he is. If he is eternally wise, for example, he could not be eternally wise unless there was a thing called wisdom that exists eternally, a universal. And so if God is all wise and all powerful and all um, knowing, or let's say all wise, all powerful and uh, just, then those three universals make up the being of God. They are part of his fundamental nature. And so you can't, conceive of God as being existent in and of himself if he is made up of really distinct properties because then he would be dependent upon those properties to be who he is. And so that's why divine simplicity is such an important thing for classical theist is because it allows us to maintain the fundamentality of God's existence. He can exist say, and be the ultimate explanation for why there is anything at all if he is not made up of really distinct properties. He just is his wisdom. He just is his goodness. He just is love as such. These are all ways that we describe God, but they don't have to be necessarily really distinct properties that God possesses. And so that's why classical theists would think that divine simplicity is important. Of course, the theistic personalists have responses to that too. Uh, Timothy O'Connor has said that God's core nature is intimately unified, where the properties cannot exist without one another. And so he gives the example in in the same book, The Theism and Ultimate Explanation, uh, which is a great book written from an open theist perspective, uh, one of the best, I would say. He says that God's core nature is intimately unified, meaning that if he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's perfectly free, he can't be those things unless they all exist with one another, so they they all depend upon one another to exist, and so they have this intimate connection that O'Connor says allows God to still exist in and of Himself because He's not made up of those parts. Those parts um, they depend upon one another for their existence, and so there is a tight enough unity O'Connor would say in God's um, in God's core nature that would still allow Him to exist apart from being dependent upon any parts because those parts. Are not separable, as O'Connor would say, because like you know you can't be uh, perfectly powerful, all powerful, if you're not free. If you can't do different things, O'Connor would say, then you can't be all powerful. Because if you're if you can't do perfect things, if you're not perfectly free, if you can't do different things, then you are not truly all powerful because you can't do everything that you can conceive to do. Uh, whereas you can't be again all knowing, if you're not um, all perfectly free. And he, and anyway, he, I, I could go on, but he he makes connections between power and, and freedom and knowledge. Um, you can't be perfectly free unless you know everything, because then you wouldn't be able to make the perfect decision if you didn't know everything. And so um, these things exist in and of themselves and they create a unity that allows God still to exist, all say. So there are theistic personalist responses to what I said about divine simplicity, but nonetheless, I think divine simplicity is still a really important point uh, for classical theism, and we'll talk about it more on the exclusive podcast episode here later this month. So in conclusion, now, this is the real conclusion. Uh, There you have it. This is a basic introduction to the issue of models of God and um, of classical theism versus theistic personalism. Uh, We'll revisit these issues at a later date. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. This has been a production of the Aletheia Initiative. If you are interested in our work, if you enjoyed this and you want to support our work, you can visit our website at www.aletheia-initiative.org. There's plenty of other content there from political podcasts and written works. And you can check out our YouTube channel and we have things like movie reviews on there. But if you want to consider, uh, consider supporting all of that, then you have more information there on our donation page on our website. But until next time, we'll see you soon.